This week I watched an extremely good film. It stars Glenn Close, and it's about an American author, played by Jonathan Price, who wins the Nobel Prize for Literature. He travels to Stockholm and nothing less than the Concord to receive his award from the Swedish King. He's also accompanied by his long-suffering, self-effacing and loyal wife. Needless to say, he's lauded to the rooftops, and when he's asked, does your wife write? He invariably says no. But as the story unfolds, it becomes clear that it is indeed the wife who wrote the books, and the husband only put his name to them. It's a great story. No wonder then the movie The Wife has received so many awards. But is it scripture? Well, no it isn't. Yet does it tell us something of our culture, our attitudes and our relationships? Yes it does. Today we are going on a summer expedition. We're going to look at some of the writings that are not included in our Protestant Bibles, but appear in the Greek and Latin translations of the Old Testament. These are often referred to as apocryphal. That doesn't mean they're untrue, since they reveal so much, as the wife did, about human life. In truth, they reveal much about God's nature as well. Now the reason that the wife in the movie started to write the award-winning books in the first place was she had little chance of being published as a woman author in the late 50s. And it's this type of prejudice that the apocryphal books of Judith, then Daniel and Susanna take head on. However, I must admit that reading them is not always for the faint-hearted, as they would rate as horror stories today. The book of Judith is particularly bloodthirsty, for the heroine Judith sees the Israelite leadership as far too compliant with a conquering general. 
they are frightened to confront him despite the invading army's huge human rights abuses. She decides to do something about it. She takes herself off, uses her charms to ingratiate herself with the military supremo, then waits until he's in his cups and, well, does him in. She then uses this act to encourage her fellow countrymen to man up and get on with defending God's justice and his people. Well, I'd like to think that the acts of barbarity that Judith had taken up her sword against were not part of our 21st century world. But of course I would be deluding myself, since acts of violence at home and abroad are part of our daily news, perhaps part of your personal experience. Too often, when witnessing such outrages in the news, we switch off, as there seems so little we can do. And that forgets the line in Judith that goes, Let all your creatures serve you. For you spoke, and they were made. You sent forth your spirit, and it formed them. There is none that can resist your voice. For here I tend to think of creatures, not so much as individuals, but groups of individuals, charities and other agencies, that try to make this world a better place for those least able to do that for themselves. And I heard recently a story, a story from Christian Aid. It tells of the work of another nurse in Africa, called none other than Judith. And she, despite all the prejudices against women, trained as a nurse and set up in her own community a hospital. Here then is a reminder that God calls us to pray, support and work for any group that's going to go out like Judith. Charities aren't afraid to get their hands dirty for those with nothing to clean them with. Even local teams that give of their time and efforts to the solving of small problems as building blocks to fixing the larger ones. For in banding together in Christ's name, we are affirming the heroism of all the Judiths, the Judiths yesterday, today and tomorrow. Or as Florence Nightingale had it, rather ten times die on the surf, heralding the way to a new world, than to stand idly on the shore. Well, heroism and virtues don't always go hand in hand, they do in the case of Susanna. She's the lead character in another book from the Apocrypha called Daniel and Susanna. In it she's falsely accused by two old elders or judges who have wicked designs upon her. She's found guilty in court and sentenced to death. However, she appeals to God and he in turn inspires Daniel to defend her. Danny then wins the day by cross-examining the old lecturers who are then promptly put to death. Let me read the denouement to you from Daniel and Susanna. It comes in verses 42 through 250. Then Susanna cried out with a loud voice and said, O eternal God, who dost discern what is secret, who art aware of all things before they come to be, thou knowest that these men have borne false witness against me, and now I am to die. Yet I have done none of the things they have wickedly invented against me, the Lord heard her cry, and as she was being led away to be put to death, God aroused the Holy Spirit of a young lad named Daniel, and he cried with a loud voice, I am innocent of the blood of this woman. All the people turned to him and said, What is it that you have said? Taking his stand in the midst of them, he said, Are you such fools, you sons of Israel? Have you condemned the daughter of Israel without examination and without learning the facts? Return to the place of judgment. 
but these men have borne false witness against her. Then all the people returned in haste, and the elder said to him, Come, sit among us, and inform us, for God has given you that right. And here the stories the Apocrypha have another important lesson for us. It's sadly true that many today subscribe to the infamous quote of Orson Welles in The Third Man. Single deaths are tragedy. A million deaths is a statistic. Since, as I've already said, it's easy when seeing acres of injustice and worse to close our eyes and hope they'll go away. But individuals can prick us back into consciousness. For through God, humans speak to humans rather than to humanity. Perhaps it was for that reason Jesus made his own case for compassion, not with statistics, mission statements and reports. Instead, he used a simple question, a piercing question, a sword of a question. Let me read its account in the Gospel of John. At dawn he had appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people had gathered around him. He sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, it commanded us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And they kept on questioning. He straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up again and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go and leave your life of sin. In this story from the New Testament, we don't have cardboard cut-out heroes or heroines. We do not have cliché plots with pantomime villains. We don't even have tyrants misusing the law. We don't even have a grieving, wronged martyr. We have a woman, we have men, and we have the Word of God. For in this story we have all the messiness and bile of humanity. We have all the complexities and perplexities of moral deciding. More pointedly in this text, we have all of life. But through it, Jesus called us all to consider the individual. He demands we cast aside laziness of thinking that lumps all into the same category. Christ begs we confront our own and others' prejudices. He insists we cast aside the letter of the law for God's command, God's command of grace, mercy and humanity. Since if we do so, we will cure the blindness of statistics, we will overcome compassion fatigue. We will remember the moral of the starfish story. Because if we make life better for just one, we will make the facts and figures better for all. Moreover, we won't just make ourselves better. We'll even make ourselves holy. Let me explain. A little girl asked her mother whether all fairy stories began with once upon a time. No, replied the mother. Today many of these begin with if I'm elected. Well, that story is probably apocryphal, but Jesus' promises never are. Since he promised if we follow me, you will be elected, elected to be my brother and sister, elected to be the daughters and sons of God, elected to be a holy people.
That means, as we've been elected, we should not tell each other's fairy stories. Rather, we should use the stories of scripture, not so much to accuse ourselves as to challenge ourselves. We should use the stories of scripture, not to condemn, but to energise. We should read the stories of scripture to remind of our election promises. That means weeding out the prejudices in our own heart and being mighty warriors of justice, just like Judith. That means stirring up our sinews and making our voice heard for those facing injustice, even violence. Because that's the example of Daniel. But surpassing even these, that means deploying the compassion, understanding and discernment of Christ so that the least are humanely treated. Ah, you say, but that will make me a soft touch. Make me a fool. Make me a clown. Well, let me finish then with a story of a clown. It was written by John Bell of the Iona community and goes like this. It was eight in the evening when we came to the fairground, the clown and I. We'd hardly arrived when there was a hysterical scream. Down the helter-skelter came a ten-year-old girl in calipers, her face aglow with delight. On the right was a caravan. I looked in to see a fortune-teller gazing at the palm of a woman with AIDS. Both were smiling. Round and round spun the rib tickler, and when eventually it stopped, out staggered two manic depression impressives, splitting their sides with laughter. On a chair with a rifle cocked in his toes, an armless ex-soldier was hitting the jackpot and winning major prizes. So I turned to the clown and said, This is absurd. I said, this is perverse. I turned and said, this is obscene. Who else gives them the time of their lives? asked the clown. Who else gives them the best to the least? And he nodded to a roundabout where my neighbour, still dressed for the office, bobbed up and down on a unicorn's back. What's he doing here? I asked. There's nothing wrong with him. Some things you don't know, came the reply. And just at that, the roundabout stopped. All seats were emptied, and all were taken, apart from one. As I drew near, I saw my name on the saddle. But how did you know, I asked, and the clown smiled softly.